0: Happy Hump Day, Oregon! I'm Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffbeatOregon.com and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. It's Wednesday, so this is an archive show. But it last aired two to ten years ago, so unless you're a hardcore long-time listener, it's probably new to you. Thanks for downloading, and I hope you enjoy it. This story was first published on January 26th, 2015, under the headline, Oregon Crooks Have Always Enjoyed Their Dynamite. Here we go. For the criminally-minded Oregonian of yore, dynamite had much to recommend it. It was relatively easy to buy the stuff, surprisingly easy to steal it from a construction depot or some such thing, and almost shockingly simple to brew at home, using a few simple innocuous ingredients from the local drugstore. Furthermore, when used in a criminal enterprise, dynamite was like a first-class ticket to the front page of the local paper. A lot of crooks really enjoyed the ensuing notoriety, so it's not surprising that it enjoyed a relatively high level of popularity among the state's criminal class. It's been used for plenty of crimes over the past hundred years or so. Crimes against society as well as crimes against good sense. In addition to obvious abuses of dynamite by safe crackers and train robbers and self-styled dead whale disposal experts, dynamite has also proved a great boon to several other categories of bad actors and dumb actors, such as extortionists. Naturally, the pony up or be blown up argument is a compelling one, although it doesn't always come together the way the extortionist would like it to. In the case of D.B. Cooper, this skyjacker who in 1970 took a commercial airline flight hostage for a $200,000 payoff, it worked out nicely, although there is plenty of doubt as to whether Cooper lived to enjoy it. In the case of David Heash, the Beaver Creek bomber, who in 1974 dynamited a dozen high-voltage power lines and threatened to cut off power to Portland if he didn't get a million-dollar ransom payout, well, it did not. The FBI triangulated on his CB radio signal and caught him red-handed. Jailbreakers Prison, until relatively recently, was a place where inmates worked hard at tough, dangerous, exhausting jobs, building roads, breaking rocks, stuff like that. Projects like that sometimes involved dynamite. When they did, enterprising would-be busters out were not slow to take advantage of any opportunities that might come their way. Case in point, late in the evening of July 28, 1907, a massive explosion rocked the Portland City Jail at Kelly Butte. A group of four inmates had managed to smuggle three sticks of the good stuff home from the jail's rock quarry. Then they spent at least a week trying to surreptitiously drill a hole in the prison wall using a railroad spike for a bit and the heel of a shoe for a hammer. Finally, having made about a one-inch deep divot in the wall, they tamped the dynamite against it as best they could, lit the fuse, and took cover. The blast cracked the concrete wall of the prison bunker, but didn't breach it. Unfortunately for the inmates involved, it was pretty easy to figure out who was responsible. Everyone in the joint ran for cover except for four guys who eagerly ran straight into the smoke and falling plaster. No doubt they tried their best to, um, act natural when they got to Ground Zero and saw that the wall was still there, but the guards didn't buy it, and all four of them were busted. Things worked out even worse for a convict named Harry Edwards at the pen in Walla Walla just over the border in Washington State in late 1915. Edwards' plan involved extracting the nitroglycerin from some dynamite he'd stolen by boiling it in a big kettle a technique well known to the Yeggs of the day who liked the more concentrated and pourable nitroglycerin for tough, safe-cracking jobs. The nitroglycerin, or soup as they called it, would float to the surface where it could be skimmed off and carefully bottled up for later use. Unfortunately for Edwards, the state was using a different kind of dynamite. Quote, After an explosion which wrecked a corner of the bunkhouse and inflicted minor injuries to two sleeping convicts, Edwards was found fully dressed while fragments of a metal kettle were distributed over the landscape, the Pendleton East Oregonian reported the next day. Edwards was considerably peeved at the state for providing dynamite, which proved so tricky. The paper doesn't mention how badly Edwards was hurt in the blast, but it couldn't have been too bad because he was out of the hospital within a week. Jealous lovers. Yes, there have been a few examples of young men using dynamite for this purpose, either trying to murder the unresponsive objects of their affection or their rivals, or sometimes both. One memorable case happened in Klamath Falls in 1912 when a 30-year-old logger named George Gowan learned that the 17-year-old girl he was sweet on, Miss Adeline Beck, was exchanging letters with another man, perhaps one closer to her own age. Gowan bought 10 pounds of 10% dynamite powder at the Baldwin hardware store, telling the clerk he wanted it for a construction project. Then he packed it in a can with a fuse, essentially making a bomb of the classic Wile E. Coyote type and paid a call at his would-be girlfriend's home. Witnesses said he was much put out at learning that Miss Beck was out with her sister watching a movie and actually asked her mother to go out and find her and fetch her home at once. One certainly hopes Adeline's mother gave the response such a request deserved, but whether she did or not, Gowan didn't have long to wait. Soon Adeline was coming up the steps with her sister. Upon seeing her, Gowan, without a word, turned and walked into the Beck's kitchen and closed the door behind him. Given how eager he had been to see her, this had to have raised a few eyebrows but the family members barely had time to exchange puzzled glances before a thunderous explosion cracked the plaster off the walls and blew open the kitchen door. Beyond, in the smoking wreckage of the kitchen, lay Adeline's erstwhile suitor, considerably mangled. He died a few hours later. Investigators determined he'd been preparing his homemade bomb to throw out into the middle of the family members gathered in the living room and it had gone off prematurely. Truant students... Every elementary school student knows at least one joke about blowing up the school. For some Oregon students, though, and at least one crotchety neighbor, it was more than just a joke. Take, for instance, Pingyang School near Marcola, a building that was blown up with dynamite three times between 1895 and 1909. The first two times by a crotchety pioneer neighbor trying to send the school board a hint that it ought to be built further away from his property... And the last time, according to persistent and rather believable rumor, by a group of disgruntled students. Not all students bent on blowing up the school knew what they were doing, though. In 1896, young Sidney Wallace noticed his friends in the playground at Failing Public School in Portland were playing with large numbers of what looked like big firecrackers. By the way, Failing Public School was named after Henry Failing. It wasn't a suggestion to the students as to how they should conduct themselves academically. Back to our story. Wallace apparently knew what those firecrackers really were. They were blasting caps. A blasting cap is to a firecracker what a Peterbilt is to a Pinto. Somebody was going to get hurt, and soon, and badly. Wallace probably agonized over this a bit. One doesn't like to snitch on one's friends. But he did the right thing and reported the situation to the head teacher, and the jig was up. In the ensuing investigation, more than a thousand blasting caps were found, scattered around the school and in the pockets of the students. As it turned out, a group of five boys had broken into a powder magazine across the river from Selwood and made away with literally thousands of the things. The lads hauled them off and started handing them out to all their friends like candy. According to the Oregonian article about this event, those blasting caps were powerful enough that, were more than one or two of them to go off at the same time, death could easily result, and a box of them would be powerful enough to do major structural damage to a building. Authorities soon got the leader of the gang of youths, a troubled 17-year-old lad named William Mount Hood Kessler—that's an awesome nickname, by the way, Mount Hood— They got him to spill the beans, and they learned he'd sprinkled caches of the explosives all over the south end of town, under boardwalks and bridges, and especially all around the school. He told the police chief he knew what they were, but stole and distributed them anyway. Kessler, by the way, was very likely not in his right mind. He and another boy had been caught stealing something the previous year and sent to the juvenile reformatory. While he was locked away there, word came to him that his father had been killed up in Washington. It's hard to tell from the 120-year-old news reports, but it's just possible that the boy's grief and guilt were strong enough to drive him to do something like blow up the school. Indeed, the newspaper account implied that Mount Hood may have been planning a massive bombing campaign, which Wallace had disrupted. If so, Wallace may have saved dozens or even hundreds of lives. Key sources in this story have included works from the Klamath Falls Evening Herald, the Portland Oregon Journal, and the Portland Morning Oregonian, from 1912, 1907, and 1896, respectively. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love, which is in turn a division of Pulp Lit Productions, a boutique publishing house that specializes in audiobook and regular book editions, of stories from the classic pulp fiction era, Robert E. Howard, Algernon Blackwood, Edgar Rice Burroughs, and so on. More info can be found at pulp-lit.com. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license, type CC by SA International 4.0. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Got an idea for a show I should do, or just want to say hi, or maybe you're going to be in Corvallis sometime soon with time for a cup of coffee or a pint of Hammerhead? Drop me a line at fj at offbeatoregon.com. Fresh episodes of Offbeat Oregon History come your way at around 6 a.m. every weekday morning. So if you're looking for the next one, you haven't long to wait. Till then, go fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now.